Man, you guys may be seated, and for those of you that are utilizing our children's ministry, you can take your children uh, back there now. And uh, for those of you who are not utilizing children's ministry, we love, uh, we run our children's ministry through first grade, but we love having our kids in the service worshiping with us, and we produce uh, children's ministry bullet, uh, bulletins that can be utilized uh, so that they can follow along uh, with us in the service and kind of use your worship guide, your bulletin as a bit of a cheat sheet. Uh, over the last eight to ten weeks, we've been uh, just working through quickly just uh, elements of our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Last week, we looked at what the confession said regarding um, God and the Holy Trinity, and that is all of chapter 2. And we're going to look at paragraph uh, 2 of chapter 2 this morning of what the confession says. It says, God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, and upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator, and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. And so that's chapter 2, paragraph 2 of our confession uh, regarding the uh, of God and the Holy Trinity. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We've been going as well several weeks uh, through this Gospel penned by John Mark under the inspiration of the Spirit. We have seen, uh, or we've noted rather, the uh, influence probably that the Apostle Peter had on John Mark, that, that in some ways this is seen as as Peter's memoirs, if you will. Uh, and uh, Mark is brief, he's immediate, he's action-focused, kind of to the point, and uh, being a source, a primary source for both Matthew's gospel and for, for Luke's gospel as well. And so this is an, an important gospel, a historical account of Jesus, his person, his works, with an emphasis on him as our suffering um, servant. And so this morning we are going to look at the calling of the first disciples and we're going to look particularly at verses 16 and 20, uh, 16 to 20. So I'm going to, I'm going to read these few verses and then I'll pray and then, and then we will begin to make some observations about this text. And, and my prayer is, is that as we do this, that we are collectively uh, depending upon the Holy Spirit of God to give us sight uh, for this text and to give us understanding of this text so that we can uh, be conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. And so this is John Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. He wrote these words. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, who we, we know as Peter, okay? He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, 
casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. I'm not going to spend any time on this this morning, but even just that phrase, make you become, is significant. Make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have preserved your word, not just inspired your word, God, that we can trust what we see and that we can have confidence that it's you that's speaking to us through this word. And so we give you all honor, all praise, all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've, we've come to the, the calling of, of the first few disciples. And in this calling, again, we're, we're still in chapter 1. It's not far removed from the, the baptism of Jesus. It's not far removed from the temptation of Jesus. It's not far removed from us seeing kind of the uh, inauguration of his preaching ministry um, as well. And, and, and in our text, we see that this first calling, it, it includes Simon, who we know to be Peter, Simon Peter. It includes Andrew, James, and John. And, and these are some of the disciples, some of the apostles, who, who will be responsible really to, to kick off, if you will, the Great Commission. Uh, these are the disciples that will be responsible along with the other apostles that Christ particularly calls, that we see him call uh, in the gospel accounts to, to lay down the foundation of the church. And Paul says that, that the apostles did this very thing, that these, these disciples did this very thing in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. We may have it up on the, yeah, the screen here. But Paul says, now therefore, in speaking to the church of Ephesus, encouraging them, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, okay? Because that's what the gospel of God does. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And get this, having been built on, on top, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. He's saying this includes you too. So Christ, the the one who called these these disciples to follow him, Christ alone, he's he's the cornerstone. And the apostles are the ones that built from that cornerstone, including the testimony of the prophets in the Old Testament in which they're they're pointing back and saying, yeah, this was about Christ. These, These Old Testament prophets were proclaiming Christ. Okay, and so the apostles, these men, they, they were called by Christ, they built the foundation, and it's one, it's a foundation that's fixed. It's a foundation that we're not still laying. And we, along with all Christians throughout church history, along with the church of Ephesus here that the apostle Paul is writing to, we're, we're being built on top of that foundation. We're the blocks, if you will, okay? In Christ, we're the holy temple of the Lord. 
We're the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And this side of eternity, we come together each and every Lord's Day as a local outpost, as a local church, right? And we come together, one of the reasons we come together, and we're going to hopefully reiterate this with the Lord's Supper this morning and then in the coming weeks, but we come together not as individuals, though we are individuals, we come together each and every Lord's Day to be reminded of all the many different things we're being reminded, be reminded that we are a part of the body of Christ, that we are collectively being built into a holy temple of the Lord. So our text this morning, really, you begin to see the beginnings of this, with this first calling um, uh, for the disciples here. They're the ones that lay the foundation. We're benefiting from this foundation being built into this holy temple of the Lord. And when we look around and we see each other, we're reminded that God's kingdom and God's church is bigger than just ourselves, right? It's not me and Jesus, though we should be personally repenting of sin and trusting in Christ alone, but it's, it's us and Christ, okay? So the other account, if you were to look for a parallel account to, to what we have here in Mark with the first calling or the calling of these first disciples is in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. And I'm not going to read it to you because the passages are, are pretty identical, but I would encourage you, you can go and, and read it later on this afternoon. But like last week, what I want to do is, is use our takeaways this morning as we work through this text. We'll kind of use the takeaways as, as a roadmap. And, and there's a lot that we can see in five verses, but we're going to l- limit ourselves to three observations. And if you're taking notes and kids, if you're following along with us, you can see this in your mom and dad's worship guide. But the first thing that we need to note here is the call of Christ is this. We forsake everything and we gain everything. We forsake everything and we gain everything. The, the call of Christ, it was unique. It was unique. One commentator says this about its uniqueness. Jesus was a very different leader from the rabbis and scribes of Judaism. Rabbis did not consummate the teacher-student relationship by the summons, follow me. Unlike the decisive call that comes from Jesus, entry into um, to, to be tutored by a rabbi depended on the initiative of the aspiring student and not the call of a rabbi. The chief allegiance of these students was to the Torah. And kids, the Torah means the, the first five books of the Old Testament, okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But the, the chief allegiance was to that, was to the Torah, rather than a particular rabbi. However, Jesus calls the four to himself. He calls them to himself. And Jesus is, uh, according to the, the Gospel of John, he's the Word made what? Flesh. It's the Word made flesh. In fact, Christ, He's the, the final Word of God, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And, and not only is He the one who seeks His disciples instead of His disciples seeking after Him, but His call to the disciples was to follow Him, to follow the Word made flesh. And what this means for us is that the call of Jesus, it was rooted, it was grounded in his messianic authority, in his very person. Never would a rabbi seek to make a disciple of himself. 
Now, that would be preposterous. That would itself even be blasphemous. Yet Christ, he did this very thing, and he did this because he's the eternal God. He is the eternal God. And notice what happens in our text. These men, they leave immediately, right? Our text uses that word immediately twice. For Peter and Andrew, they leave their jobs, they leave their livelihoods, they leave what they know to be familiar and comfortable, they leave it. They forsake it, and they follow Christ. And Christ and his call, the calling of Christ is compelling. It's not just compelling, it's, it's authoritative. It's not just authoritative. Get this, it's desirable. It's desirable. It's to be preferred above everything else. For James and John... They do the same thing. They forsake everything, and except the tech, our text, it indicates that, that they left their family as well. Their, their father, Zebedee, along with the hired servants. And this isn't a small thing. Right? Maybe we've read this a thousand times for those of us that have been Christians a lot, and you just kind of get used to seeing it. But what, what's happening here, what happened 2,000 plus years ago, it's no small thing, right? We shouldn't think of Peter, Andrew, James, and John as some obscure fishermen. It's not the way we should think about them, right? Fish was the preferred protein of choice in this day and age. And in the Sea of Galilee, it was a very fruitful place to be able to fish. Found Christ came across all four of these in different spots along the Sea of Galilee. But not only that, if you remember the location of Galilee, we talked about this during week one. We remember that it was, there was a trade route there and how ancient, uh, how um, people viewed ancient Galilee to kind of be um, the, the place in which you could get anywhere. Right? Very kind of a central hub for this sort of economy, if you will. So these disciples, these first disciples, they were carving out for themselves a really good, stable, honest sort of living as fishermen. James and John seemed to be especially doing well because they had hired servants. Yet they left everything at the invitation of Christ Jesus to follow him. And these men, they wouldn't have left for no reason. You don't walk away from what they had for no reason. Again, the, the, the call of Christ, it was compelling to them. The call of Christ was desirable to them. Right? For, the, for these men, they knew, even if they, they couldn't quite form the vocabulary around it at this time, and they didn't see the full picture. In fact, we have a fuller picture than they do having the closed canon of Scripture. But these men, they knew, perhaps even at a gut level, that to forsake everything would mean gaining Christ. And to gain Christ is to gain everything. It's to gain everything that matters. Now, I'm not saying this morning that following Jesus looks literally like quitting your job and uprooting your family. Right? I've, seen, I've seen men make shipwreck of their lives by thinking that they're following some sort of divine calling when in fact they weren't. But what we do need to see is that there should be, and as we're reading this, there should be a a spiritual open-handedness as it relates to how we follow Christ. There should be a spiritual forsaking 
as it relates to how we follow Christ. It's, it's a, a seeing, if you will, of everything as lesser in the pursuit of gaining and following and knowing Christ Jesus. And another way of saying this is Jesus, as he reveals himself to us in the scripture, is to be your heart's treasure. It's to be your heart's treasure. He's to be your very contentment. And the trickle down from that is that these lesser loves in your life, which are good, will be ordered appropriately. They'll be ordered appropriately. You'll even be able to love other people better, right? You'll use your resources better. You'll be a better worker because your loves are ordered, right? Christ is to be our first love. He's to be our first love above everything else, right? Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Right, this is what I think some of what Christ was getting at, not all that Christ was getting at, but this is some of what Christ was getting at when he told his disciples, when he spoke to his disciples about denying yourself, which actually means to disown yourself, the disowning of yourself. He says in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 36, when he, Christ, had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires, and here's gospel logic, whoever desires to save his life is going to actually lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Right, we, we see similar gospel logic in the thinking of the, uh, in, in the, the exhortation that the Apostle Paul gives to the church of Philippi. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. But what things were gained to me? And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, from a worldly perspective, he had much to lose. But what things were gained to me? These I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's in possession of Christ here, right? For whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, know Christ, in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Right? To lose Everything in your pursuit of Christ isn't loss at all. Right? In our materialistic age, where we even take the good common gifts from God, we even take human relationships and we make them ultimate things. We make God, we fashion them into gods and worship those things. This is backwards to us. We flinch at this sort of thinking, at this sort of wisdom here. That gaining Christ is to gain everything. It's to find your life. Everything, according to the Apostle Paul, is, is counted as rubbish to gaining Christ. In some of your translations, he talks about, it's almost like he's taking rubbish and he's, 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 he's propping it up and saying, see the surpassing value and beauty of all that you've gained, that, that even this good stuff, even your reputation, even your material possessions, even these relationships that you have in life that you cling so closely to, it pales in comparison. 
It pales in comparison to having, to possessing Christ, to being in Christ. So we see in the forsaking of everything that we gain everything. We gain everything that matters. And even the things that we do have, we're able to enjoy them so much more because we have Christ. Because we have Christ. So when you look at your closed-fisted hands this morning, what do you see there? What do you see there? Secondly, unbelief isn't based on a lack of evidence. It's rooted in unrighteousness. Unbelief isn't based on a lack of evidence. It's rooted in unrighteousness. These disciples, in some way, they knew what they were gaining. Okay, that, that's why they immediately left everything for the sake of following Christ, for the sake of being near Christ. But a little backdrop from John's gospel, it demonstrates to us that at least some of these disciples, at least a couple of these disciples, they knew more about Jesus than what we realize by Mark's account. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit of God had already been doing a work in these first disciples, particularly Andrew and Peter. According to John chapter 1, and I'm not going to read it, but verses 35 to 42, Peter and Andrew were disciples of John the Baptist initially. So, so again, consider how closely linked the ministry of John the Baptist was with the ministry of Jesus Christ. Through the ministry of John the Baptist, Andrew and Peter, they were being prepared, if you will, being prepared by the Holy Spirit of God. They were being prepared to confess Jesus as Messiah, even though we're not seeing them confess Jesus as Messiah right here in our immediate text, we know that that's where this thing's heading, right? They witnessed John the Baptist's testimony about Christ. But what we need to note is that their following of Jesus, and this is critical for us, their following of Jesus wasn't because they thought their way into the kingdom of heaven. They didn't think their way into the kingdom of heaven. It's not because they were smart enough to connect all the dots Again, that's not, that's not how gospel logic works. Right? That's why the wisdom of Christ is folly and foolishness to those who are perishing. Because it just doesn't square right in our own limited understanding. But think for a moment about the fact that Jesus, he wasn't doing the obvious Messiah stuff. He wasn't doing the obvious Messiah stuff. He didn't come the way the Jews believed that the Messiah was going to come. He came as a baby, the incarnation. Right? He humbled himself. Right? He was baptized with the baptism of John the Baptist, which even John questioned, like, what? I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me, right? He preached in Galilee. Does anything good come out of Galilee? Think about even the call of these disciples. He didn't call star students, did he? Right? They, they weren't what you would consider to be, to be top shelf students. Right? Is, it, is it related to that rabbi and student sort of relationship? Furthermore, Jesus came for sinners. Right? Again, because we have the closed canon of Scripture, we know that he being around sinners was a point of controversy. Is the Messiah really going to recline at the table with sinners and tax collectors? Really? That's the Messiah? We know that he died the death of a criminal on a cross 
being mocked and being ridiculed. I mean, theologians have called the first advent of Christ the, the, humil- the humiliation of Jesus. Right? Jesus left glory, right? and he took on frail human flesh. He took on frail human flesh. And he did that so that we could, as sinners, be reconciled to God. That's a glorious reality, but that's not how the Jews anticipated the arrival of their long-awaited-for Messiah. And the evidence even from that, from the, that's not what they expected. Again, we see that even in the New Testament itself and how Christ was rejected by the spiritual authorities of the day, by the religious leaders of the day, those same religious leaders that really were leading the charge, if you will, to him being crucified like a criminal. So these first disciples, they weren't really connecting all the dots here, although they had clear testimonies regarding the identity of Jesus. And it wasn't that they weren't connecting the dots because they were dense. That's, that's not why they weren't connecting the dots. Right? It's because the ways of God are not the ways of man. Right? The ways of God are not the ways of man. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 to 9. They're higher. They're better. Right? We think too temporal, low. We care about the stuff that doesn't matter. Not God. Now, I'm not saying that we need to check our minds at the door as it relates to the Christian faith. Right? God gave us a mind. And he's told us to love him with our mind, Mark chapter 12, verse 30. And furthermore, we have every reason to come to Jesus. Right? The scriptures teach this. Right? We have the completed canon of scripture. We have eyewitness testimony written during the lives of other eyewitnesses, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. As I mentioned last week, we have the blood of martyrs that Tertullian was saying is the seed of the church, right? testifies to who Christ is and how we should approach Christ. And we're not without credible reasons to believe, and neither were these disciples that were called by Christ. The Christian faith, it doesn't lack evidence. The historicity of faith isn't on shaky ground. That's why you often see skeptics argue from the edges, from obscure things, and not straight up the middle. And we have every reason to embrace Christ evidentially. But none of this is why you're a Christian. None of it is why you're a Christian. None of it is why I'm a Christian. Now, we may pride ourselves on being thinking people, but you can't think your way into the kingdom of God. You cannot think your way into the kingdom of God. I'm a Christian, and you're a Christian solely because it's a gift from God. Bottom line, Right? The disciples left everything, and they followed Christ because Christ called them, and he has all authority. Christ has all authority. Christ, us following him, is all of grace from God. It's all of grace from God. And no one enters the kingdom of God with bragging rights. Nobody. No one enters the kingdom of God because they had all their questions sufficiently answered. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8-9. You and I didn't have the capacity to step outside of ourselves 
to, to step outside of our sin nature and judge the truthfulness of Scripture and the character of Christ. In fact, it's a wildly arrogant thing to think that you clearly and unbiasedly can do that, and, and, and thus you put yourself in the seat of a judge on whether or not Christ is who he said he is. Think of the audacity of that for a moment, that we, sinful, fallen, feeble creatures who lack self-control over the smallest of things, think we have the authority and ability to put Christ on trial. Now, the ultimate reason that Christians exist is not because we've evaluated all of the evidence and we've informed God that he's been persuading enough to us. We're Christians because our God has had mercy on us. He's had mercy on us. We're Christians because God in his infinite wisdom chose to love us. We're Christians because he's gifted us according to the counsel of his own will, salvation. We're Christians because Jesus said, follow me, not will you follow me. So what of unbelief? What of unbelief? Often the unbeliever will will kind of hide behind a supposed wall of logic. Yet unbelief really is driven by unrighteousness. We're not morally neutral creatures. We're not morally neutral. We are by nature enemies of God. It isn't a lack of evidence that drives unbelief. It's our unrighteousness that suppresses what can be plainly perceived. The Apostle Paul says as much, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, quote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, get this, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I don't... Don't move too quickly past what the Apostle Paul is saying here because he's diagnosing the human condition. He's being a physician of the soul, if you will. And he says what may be known of God is manifest in them, which means it's plain. It's plain. Because God's shown it. Okay, where? Where has he shown it? Since the creation of the world, he's shown it. His invisible attributes, his divine power, they're clearly seen in what's made but it's our unrighteousness that suppresses that obvious truth. We think we, th- we see things in, uh, that are obvious to us. The Bible says we don't see things that are obvious to us. We over- we've, overcome- we've blinded it because of our unrighteousness. Our very thinking faculties are darkened and they're dull. Right? We don't see eternally significant things on our own. We don't. This is why we need the Holy Spirit of God to give us sight. This is why the Apostle Paul speaks just a few chapters later of us needing our minds, our very minds renewed. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The disciples heard the call of Christ, and the Holy Spirit of God bore witness to their inner man to follow Christ. Jesus said, follow me. 
And they came immediately. They came immediately. Mark demonstrates for us not just how authoritative the call of Christ is, but even how Christ is the initiator in calling us. And, and that again, his call, again, it's compelling and attractive to us. You look around at all the devastation that sin has caused and then a voice, unstained by sin and with unparalleled authority, speaks to you. He speaks. That's compelling. And Christ's come to call to follow him. It's echoed from generation to generation to generation as the Holy Spirit of God has preserved his pure word, the Holy Scriptures. It's the call that we hear each and every Lord's Day. We only need to come. We only need to come. And when we come, we must remember that we come because he's called us. He's called us. If you're not a Christian this morning, I ask, is he calling you? Is he calling you? Do you hear his voice through the scriptures? If so, follow him. Leave everything behind. The first four disciples, they left behind their vocations and even their family. Christ is calling you to leave behind your sins. He's calling you to leave behind your concerns. He's calling you to leave behind your excuses and follow him. Third, fishing for men is preparing men for judgment. Fishing for men is preparing men for judgment. Right? Christ's call to make fishers of men isn't, it's not Christ being playful with the fishermen. It has behind it Old Testament judgment language. This call to fish for men. Don't forget that in the previous verse, we looked at last week, Mark records, last couple of weeks, Mark records Jesus is preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's imminent. And in Mark's immediate style, there's urgency in this calling that we see here, this task to fish for men. Allow me just to read some of the Old Testament language to you regarding fishing for men. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16. Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish for them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes and rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. Or to, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, we see this in Ezekiel chapter 29, verses 4 to 5. But I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. And I'll bring you up out of the midst of your rivers and all the fish in your rivers will stick to your scales. I will leave you in the wilderness, you and all your fish of your rivers. You shall fall on the open field. You shall not be picked up or gathered. I've given you as food to the beast of the field and to the birds of the heavens. You see, when Amos... Chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord God is sworn by his holiness, by his very own character. Okay. Behold, the day shall come upon you when he will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Right? To fish for men is to prepare men for judgment. Jesus even brings this into greater focus for us in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 13 verses 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet, a, fi a fishnet, okay, that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore. They sat down, they gathered the good into vessels and they threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace 
of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Should make this call look a bit different. We should feel the, the urgency again in this call that we're preparing men for judgment. We're moving toward the day when the wicked will be separated from the just. And who is just but Christ alone? Christ alone. So judgment preparation is a call for one to be found in Jesus Christ. One commentator says it like this, the summons to be fishers of men is a call to the eschatological task of gathering men in the forthcoming judgment of God. It extends to the demand for repentance in Jesus' preaching, and it's precisely because Jesus has come that fishing becomes necessary. Fishing is the evidence of the fulfillment which Jesus proclaimed, the corollary of the inbreaking kingdom. The immediate function of those called to be fishers of men is to accompany Jesus as witnesses to, to the proclamation of the nearness of the kingdom and the necessity for men to turn to God through repentance. Their ultimate function will be to confront men with God's decisive action, which to faith has the character of salvation, but to unbelief has the character of judgment. Right? The coming of Christ, it makes fishing for men possible. Right? The irresistible call of Christ to follow is what makes our heralding of the gospel effectual. As Christians preaching the gospel, uh, fulfilling the Great Commission, it's to announce that all men will stand before God. There will be judgment because our God is just and he'll by no means clear the guilty. Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. And we'll either be judged by our own biographies which I don't know about you, but when I evaluate my life, that makes me tremble. We'll either be judged by our own biographies, what we've done, or we will be judged by the biography of Christ. Which is better? Which is better? Who do you, whose works, whose person do you want to be judged by? So may we be found in Christ. And believer, this morning, know this, that the Christ who's called you is the Christ, the Messiah that will keep you close. Your following of him is because you were given to him by the Father. And Christ says this of you, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me, they will come to me. Now that's a promise. If you're coming to him, it's because the Father's giving, he, he has given you, handed you over to Christ. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, and here's, here's the beauty of being held by Christ, I will by no means cast out. I'll by no means cast out. For those of you that are not in Christ, hear his voice this morning. Because his voice is, his voice to, to follow him. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Come to me. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for our time together in your word.
We ask that you would strengthen and encourage us, God, that you would humble us, Lord, to see that your calling of us and our trusting in you, Lord, is all of grace. Lord, we can't boast about it. We can't brag about it. It's purely a gift. And we give you all honor, all glory, and all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.